Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. So um, this morning, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's uh, been called uh, the Prince of Preachers, uh, certainly one of the most famous of the English-speaking uh, preachers. Uh, he, interestingly, is even though he's uh, uh, certainly uh, very bright, uh, Pastor David and I were talking about it. I think he had a photographic memory. I, I'm not sure. Uh, it's remarkable that he remembered the things that he did, even at a young age. He, he did have some ministerial training, but he never had any formal training in a theological school, which is remarkable. His church, uh, New, New Park Street in London, was what we would now call an inner-city church. It was located in a filthy industrial district, which was hard to reach. Uh, you can imagine they were at the end of the Industrial Revolution, and people of means had moved away, uh, what we call white flight uh, today. Um, once a growing congregation of 1,200, it had now declined to a group of just over 200 people. And so, after a few twists and turns, Spurgeon was asked to be the pastor of this once influential congregation at the ripe age of 20 years old. Uh, within a year, the building could not hold the number of those who wanted to attend, um, and so expansion was deemed necessary. While renovation was progressing, his congregation met in a large meeting hall, which was considered scandalous back then, um, to meet in a public building. Just a few months later, they outgrew their new building and began to also meet on Sunday nights in a, in a music hall. And uh, on October 19th, uh, 1856, so this would be uh, just uh, two years later, 10,000 people were crammed in to hear Spurgeon preach with another 10,000 outside. Shortly after the service began, someone yelled fire. And of course, there was a panic and seven people died. I don't think that Spurgeon ever really recovered from that emotionally, from what people have said about him especially given his uh, poor health. Uh, I think he battled depression you know, he's, uh, for the rest of his life. He was 22 at that point. A new building was built with the continued goal of ministering in the inner city of London. Uh, he did more than just be a preacher. He was a pastor. They started an orphanage. They established their own pastor's college. They published a monthly magazine, which I'm going to talk about uh, in a sec. His church grew from a membership of 232 to 5,000, over 5,300. I guess you could call it maybe one of the first megachurches. Um, William Gladstone, who was a prime minister during some of those years, um, called Spurgeon the last Puritan. Because Spurgeon held to the tenets of Calvinism while being warmly evangelic evangelicalistic, evangelicalistic, Evan yeah, I think I'm saying it right. It seemed that he was also shot from all sides. Some Calvinists called him Arminian, and many Arminians called him a hyper-Calvinist. Of course, those attacks meant little to Spurgeon. What he longed for was what the earlier Puritans had ardently prayed for. He longed for God to pour out his spirit on his people. 
he was always calling the church to revival. And I came across this uh, cartoon that I think is uh, quite telling. This is Spurgeon, as you can see, is a very young man. Uh, brimstone is, uh, is refers to like the sulfur, you know, the, uh, you've heard the expression fire and brimstone. So, and he's raising his hands, warning people of hell, I suppose. And the other minister, this, uh, this is a, a British uh, thing, treacle, that we don't, may not know about it, but it's a syrupy, sweet thing. Um, and you can see, even from the cartoonist did a pretty good job, I think, of showing this. Um, and you can see that the clothing, the, the pillow, um, he was uh, smooth, sweet, syrupy, uh, quite a contrast. And yet, um, uh, Spurgeon, um, while he was popular, he was also demonized as well. Um, he, um, despite his immense popularity, um, and by the way, no one, it's possible that no one is more published than Spurgeon. His sermons were often printed in newspapers over a hundred million sermons sold. And people would, ladies would sit while he was preaching and take shorthand and write the sermons out and then people would run and print them and sell them for a penny or for two cents. Um, and about 200 books were published, usually as sermons. But controversy followed Spurgeon. Um, as you can see in these political cartoons, he was made fun of. Uh, because, of course, he, he fought against uh, uh, Darwinian, you know, evolution. And uh, this is the um, a cover uh, piece of um, the magazine Sword and the Trowel, a record of combat with sin and labor for the Lord, if you were wondering what that says. Um, in March and April of 1887, uh, less than five years before his death at the age of 57, Two articles appeared in his magazine, uh, The Sword and the Trowel. The articles pointed out the steady decline that seemed to be taking place among evangelicals. Sound familiar? Um, and yet this is, uh, what, uh, 150 years ago, more than that. Some of us may have an image of the good old days, um, but the garden seems to be far off from every generation. Spurgeon observed that no lover of the gospel conceal from himself the fact that the days are evil. And so I'm going to show you some words that got him in some trouble. He said, the time has come for Christians to stir. The house is being robbed. Its very walls are being digged down. But the good people who are in the bed are too fond of the warmth and too much afraid of getting broken heads to go downstairs to meet the burglars. Inspiration and speculation cannot long abide in peace. Compromise there can be none. We cannot hold the inspiration of the word and yet reject it. We cannot believe in the atonement and deny it. We cannot talk of the doctrine of the fall and yet talk of evolution of spiritual life from human nature. One way or another we must go. Decision is the virtue of the hour. And he challenged his denomination, much like people are doing today, like people we've done with the PCA. I, I was, uh, went to a wrestling match uh, 
this Friday with a bunch of people from Christ the Word. And, and um, I mentioned MacArthur last week, and you know he's come under some heat because he's called out the Southern Baptist Convention because they've you know, passed resolutions in the last few years where they think that the Bible should be translated with respect to critical race theory. And, um, and he told Beth Moore, just, you know, she was, he said, just go home. And he got, uh, he's getting in a lot of trouble for that. Um, we will, if we care about doctrine, we're going to get in trouble. And like Spurgeon said, we, uh, we have to not be afraid to get our heads broken. He um, challenged his fellow ministers, and he was left on an island. He did not get the support that you think that a, a popular preacher would get. Avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as those preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. And this statement right here, he was right. He's right. If you go to England today, it's, it's an apostate nation. It is. And if there's any evangelicals who live there, they'll tell you the same. Known, this was known as a downgrade controversy. He came under fire by other members of the Baptist Union. That was his denomination. And they were increasingly embracing the new theology. And of course, if you it, things were starting to pick up steam, people uh, questioning you know, the virgin birth, the, uh, the inspiration of the scriptures, uh, miracles. Uh, we, we were becoming enlightened. And so um, if we couldn't uh, prove it, then, well, there's a problem there. So in less than a year, English, England's largest Baptist church left the Baptist Union. With that, the Union voted to censure Spurgeon. The council of nearly 100 members voted to censure him with only a meager five men supporting him. It cost him friendships, and even his own brother disowned him, or disowned his position. He said, I am quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future shall vindicate me. Indeed, Spurgeon has been vindicated. What he said happened, the Baptist Union is a, is a shadow of its former self. The denomination is, is nothing. His downgrade controversy really foreshadowed the fundamentalist, modernist controversy that would happen you know, in, the, in the generation to follow. Um, he has a lot to say about um, um, religion and knowing Christ uh, he says religion is a, Christianity is a heart religion, and he has a, there's a lot of quotes that I want to use from Spurgeon, which is why I chose him this morning. Um, when Spurgeon uh, was doing an exposition of uh, Colossians, he observed that Christianity is a, a heart religion. Um, using text from uh, Colossians 1, 9 and 10, he said, Spurgeon suggests that true knowledge um, is possessed in the heart. This is the text um, from Colossians. 
For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit, we talked about that last week, and every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, increasing in the knowledge of God. Um, this is the height of knowledge, Spurgeon said, to see Christ and know the Father and to learn how to say from the heart, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said that knowledge is food to the true heart and strengthens it for the Lord's work. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how we receive knowledge. This lesson is um, kind of an appendix to everything we've talked about. Last week, admittedly, was sort of the climax. How do we know God? Uh, this week, we're kind of ramping down. And then the following week, I get to talk we do a totally new uh, lessons, two pair of lessons. I'm going to talk about uh, angels and demons. And then, um, which is odd to go from that to this, that and then uh, spiritual warfare. And I'm supposed to go somewhere to an annual trip, and Jonathan Rutherford has agreed to teach my last class. Um, so I, I agree with Spurgeon that Christianity is a heart religion, but really, what does that mean? Some contemporary theologians have said that Christianity is both a heart religion and a head religion. So we use that word heart and head, and we, we're making a distinction, and I think it's important when you look at Scripture to try to figure out, well, what does Scripture mean when it, when it uses the word heart? Um, how we receive knowledge, the knowledge of God especially, is, is our subject this morning. Is there a meaningful distinction between the role of the heart and role of the mind? What is the role of reason, emotion, and experience? And that's what I wanted to talk about. Um, Frame calls this section in his book, resources for knowing, and I think what he means is, and I, I changed the title to um, receiving the knowledge of God, so he's talking about how we receive the knowledge of God, not just, um, not how to do it, but, and again, like I said, this is sort of like an appendix. So, um, the Bible says um, that the heart is the seat of understanding. Uh, and so here's, uh, if you can read, I'm hoping you can read some of this. I don't want to read every passage. Again, as I've said, I'd like you to try to read. Jesus also says, um, Blessed are the pure in heart, that, um, for they shall see God. The heart is the center of the, of the personality, the person himself and his most basic character. Scripture represents it as the source of thought, of volition, attitude, and of speech. Jesus tells the Pharisees, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The heart reflects what we truly are. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, the psalmist says in Psalm 14. We can even learn from a negative example of this proposition, the implication, what's the implication of a corrupt heart? When the Bible says that the heart of man is desperately wicked, the clear inference is that the whole man is corrupt. As such, our re behavior reflects the condition of our heart. The root of the Pharisees' problems, and I mentioned this last week, um, was the condition of their heart. But I thought when I was typing this that 
We have to be careful not to be proud because this really applies to us too. We have to be careful not to think that Jesus' warnings were exclusive to the Pharisees and that we're, we're above that. We have much to learn. And it's, we have to remember that it, the inside, that our, our good works are a product of what's on the inside. Um, I, we could argue that theological knowledge is whole person knowledge or heart knowledge. Um, intellect, emotions, will, imagination are all senses that contribute toward the developing our heart knowledge of God. And while we could debate which faculties are most important, we should agree that various faculties contribute to our knowledge of God. Now we're going to talk about some of those. Before I do, um, someone said to me after class last week that when I talked about my devotion that I was writing and just passing on, and Pastor David encouraged women too to, to journal, to, to pass it on. It can be a blessing. And, and this person said, well, it'd be helpful if you modeled it, if you, you know, like show an example. And I, I was somewhat reluctant. I even asked pastor's advice about this. I don't want this to seem self-indulgent or like I'm bragging or, or um, uh, sometimes I have, I'm clever and sometimes I'm not, you know. And so this is what I was talking about. This is the copy I gave to Dee. I, so I took it to Kinko's and I, you know, printed it in Microsoft Word, and this is what it looked like, the finished product. Um, so I thought I would just pick one out at random, because I really don't know. Um, so I just thought I'd give you an idea of what I'm, what I'm talking about, if that's okay, and if that's helpful. So I just picked out Psalm 103. It's kind of the middle of the book here. I started getting, I think I got as I progressed, I think I got a little better. I maybe sometimes wrote a little longer. Sometimes I spend 15 minutes. Sometimes I might spend an hour. Sometimes I spend zero minutes. You know, I try. You know, this week I've done five, you know, entries. In first, I'm in 1 Corinthians now. Um, so I just picked out Psalm 103. I hope this one's okay. Um, the, I, what I do is I choose a verse. To, to be like the key verse for me in the passage. Again, this is just my way. You do whatever you want. I'm just cutting and pasting from ESVs free, you know, and so I got an ESV thing on my iPad, and I just cut and paste. So I cut and paste a, a verse. Oftentimes it's the first verse, and that's what this one is. And you've heard this before. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And then I try to and of course, I read the whole psalm, and I try to incorporate ideas from the psalm. And this is what I was talking about when Owen talks about meditation. And I'm thinking about how it applies to me. And I tried really hard to write this in first person, because it's really easy when you're doing writing stuff, devotions, to, do, to be third person and talk about people in general and, and fail to include yourself. And so I tried to write in first person to say, you know, refer to God as you, you know, and me. What do I need to do? How should I respond? And so 
I said, this is such a majestic psalm. David beautifully extols the attributes of God more exhaustively than most any psalm. The opening verse is the chorus of a memorable song and one that I can't help singing in my head when I read it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. I think it's an Andre Crouch song. I glorify your name and pray that thoughts of your mercy and majesty would be the most natural expression of my heart. Bless your holy name. I praise you for your generous providence in my life. You forgive my sins and you love me despite my regular unfaithfulness. I cherish my redemption and value my adoption as your child. You give me strength when I am weak and support me when I don't even realize I need help. You are just, you are just according to a perfect standard of righteousness. You are merciful and gracious. Your love is impossible to full, fully com comprehend, but I know it to be true love. Thank you for loving me. Despite my obstinacy, your forgiveness is pleasing to my soul. It, you don't need to be a scholar to do that. You just write what's on your heart. How does the word move you? And the word should move you, right? Now, it, does, it doesn't just move me by accident. I, I admit that. I have, to, I have to think about it. Because too often when we do our Bible reading, we put our time in much like I do in my prayers in the morning. I, um, we, David and I also mentioned Chuck Swindoll the other day on Friday. And Chuck Swindoll said something that said, stuck with me. He goes, when's the last time you prayed a new prayer? That's a real challenge. It's a good challenge, right? Because we get in, I get in a routine. I go, I start with Thanksgiving, I pray for my kids, I pray for my wife. Sometimes throw in a few about me. Maybe I confess something. I pray for, you know, some urgent things that are out there. I'm still praying for the Fornies and the Vest family because of their loss. And I go through and I hit, check off the boxes. And if I'm in a hurry, that's where I stop. And if I'm not in a hurry, maybe I go a little farther. But I think it's a fair question. When's the last time you prayed a new prayer? And you can do that reading scripture. It could be the same thing. When's the last time you read scripture differently? You know, challenge yourself to get something out of what you read. And for me, writing it down forces me to do it. Otherwise, I would gloss over it. You follow? And now that I've set this precedent, I'm afraid that my daughters are going to want me to keep doing this. And so I'm trying to even be more careful. I even sometimes edit. <laughs> I try, you know, you try to just not do that, right? You're trying to make it, and then I'll go back and say, oh, I should probably say it this way. So I am trying to be a little more careful sometimes, but I like to write, and I know that makes me unusual. Uh, I'm a math teacher who likes to write. But... Um, I'm only a math teacher because other, it's a long story. But um, I just want to encourage you. And I, and I, I, I pray that I'm not, this doesn't come across as boasting. Please forgive me if there's pride here. I'm not trying to be prideful. Um, I asked, even asked if I, David, if, I, if, he, if he thought this was okay. I don't want this to come across the wrong way. I'm not trying to set any standard for you. I'm trying to encourage you. And, and 
you can have fun with it. And so when I'm doing now, I'm in 1 Corinthians, instead of trying to do the same thing, now I'm trying to study more. And, and so I turn to Calvin or, you know, Henry or somebody, when if there's a verse that I'm having trouble with or wondering how am I looking at this right. And so now my new, new one is, is going to be more devotional commentary a little bit. I'm trying to have fun with it, you know, make it interesting for me. So I'm not just praying the same prayers over and over, right? Trying to make it fresh. You can have fun with it. You make it interesting for yourself. And I've taken a lot of time with that, and I'm, um, but I, I still think it's, I think it's, it's practical. Um, so I wanted to talk about the mind and reason. Um, Jesus um, said you love, should love the God with all your heart, uh, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so the reason I mention this is it appears to be a distinction between mind and heart. But as I researched this, I found it interesting because it's pretty much understood that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. And, but Moses doesn't add the word mind, which I thought was interesting. He only mentions loving God with heart, soul, and strength. Calvin, when I went to Calvin, I thought he'd have something to say about this. He, he, he said, I'm not going to get into that debate, right? It just seems that um, there's not much of a difference, really, in Scripture. Uh, so I'm, I'm unwilling to engage in unprofitable speculation by saying that there's a distinct difference between the heart and mind, at least in Scripture. I, I thought, consider Second uh, Samuel 7.3. This is the NAS, which a lot of us use. And, and Nathan says to David, go do everything that's in your mind. But the Hebrew word here is heart. And ESV and all the old translations translate it literally. He says, go and do everything that is in your heart. Now, I'm not picking on the NAS translators. What's that? They should, but they should. And a lot of the modern translations change the word heart to mind. But I'm not picking it on the NAS, okay? Because it's a good translation, and no translation is perfect. And I'm not, pick, I'm not picking on it. What, the reason I bring it up is, as you can see, respected translators don't see the difference, right? They see them as synonymous. And that's what I'm trying to prove to you, um, that I think that it's pretty much synonymous. Heart and mind in Scripture um, do everything that's in your heart. And I agree with David, they should have put, if the word's heart, they should have, that's what they should have used. But you get the idea. So the question becomes, what for us, what is the role of reason, if we're going to talk about the mind in a, in, a, um, in a secular sense, what's the role of reason with respect, with respect to knowing God more fully? If it's impossible to please God without faith, does it follow that reason is an obstacle to faith. That's what you know, people will ask us, right? And of course we say certainly not. Here I would say there's no such thing as blind faith. While the quality of a person's rationale may be deemed by someone else as being poor or ex excellent, every belief that a person holds is supported by reason. Everything you believe is supported by reason. 
even what sports team you root for. There's a reason for it. So when I say, why is your son Nathan a Green Bay Packers fan? Well, because his dad was. I, I read a book about Bart Starr when I was real little from the Scholastic Magazine. I said, I'll pick that one. And I became a, a Bart Starr fan, a Green Bay fan. And, and it, so if someone asked Nathan, well, I'm a Packers fan, I guess, because my dad is. He has a reason. It might not be a good reason, but it's a reason. You, you hear, what, hear what I'm saying? Don't let people think that your faith is not supported with reason. It is. You have reasons to believe everything you believe. To begin with, God is rational. And, and Scripture says that truth is paramount. It's quite clear. Jesus is clear in John 4. Uh, in Psalm 31.7, David addresses, addresses God, O Lord God of truth. And, and Jesus says, this is eternal life, that people may know you, right? That the true God. In John 5, Jesus says, the Spirit is truth. The essence of God is logic. Consider the opening words of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Logos, right? And the Logos was God. The Greek word Logos means word, reason, plan, and it's the word from which, of course, we derive the word logic. It's not a stretch to say God is logic. I really like this quote by Gordon Clark. He's a, a contemporary of, of um, Cornelius Van Til, who was a mentor to John Frame, the guy that uh, wrote the book that we're kind of following the outline. But it's not necessarily his content. His content's good, though. Okay. But it, I, I think this is really good. I hope you can read it. I'm going to anyway. It is his decree that makes one proposition true and another false. Whether the proposition be physical, psychological, moral, or theological, it is God who made it that way. And this is something I believe is true. And a proposition is true because God says so. We judge, and I talked about this last year, and it's so... If I learned one thing in my truth in life preparation from last year, and I spent many hours, it was that justice is determined, the standards of justice is determined by God. We tend to look and say, that's not fair. That doesn't seem right. Why, the, the world says, well, why does God permit this? If God's so loving, why... Everything God does is just, and so we should consider justice from the standpoint that what he does is just. Now, people might say, well, that's circular reasoning. That's like, well, I'm starting with a premise that God is good. And we have to start somewhere. I think God has to be good, logically speaking. That's another, another time, I suppose, you know, another argument. But God has to be good. He has to be. By necessity. If he wasn't, I mean, why would he even be, continue to exist? This garden would, I've used that analogy, this garden would just be, go nuts, right? Um, that God is a rational being and that we are made in his image is, um, at least to this extent, should be beyond dispute. For else, why would God make the invitation, come now, let us reason together? We read in the, in the Psalms. 
Atheistic folk want us to think that belief in the divine is not compatible with rational thought, and we shouldn't let them get away with that. And there's, you know, enlightenment people, humanists, famous people like John Locke and David Hume who say things like, um, well, here's uh, David Hume, a wise man proportions his belief to the evidence. And you know what? I agree with that. I am fine with that statement. I'm fine with it. I can tell you that I'm about as analytical and rational as anyone you probably know personally. I am. I'm a math teacher. You know? I told you, I don't buy lottery tickets. It's a tax against people who are bad at math. <laughs> and I've weighed the evidence. I've weighed the evidence. I, I firmly believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to save me from my sins. I believe it. I've weighed the evidence. Um, we not, might not be able to supply um, uh, enough you know, evidence to satisfy the empiricist, right? But I, I believe there's a rational foundation to believe in God and that, a, um, that the burden of proof also lies with them. Why is a burden of proof rest on us? It's purely rational to think that there's a divine being. As Paul said, you can look out at nature and look at the beauty of the world and, and mathematically say, you know, no one's been able to figure out how to create life. If it's not random, then there is at least a designer. So my point is, it's, it's a rational thought. The burden of proof should also be on them to prove that a God doesn't exist. Don't let them get away with it. That's what bugs me about, I understand why evolution is taught in schools. It's a reasonable theory. I didn't say it was right, but it's reasonable. There is some reason behind it, right? But what bothers me is that creationism isn't considered reasonable. That's what bothers me. Because it is reasonable. It, there, there's, there's reason behind it. And there's even flaws in the other guy's theory. All the more to say, yeah, well maybe creationism isn't. In a public school, I'd like people to say, at least not reject it out of hand. And that's what they do. And that bothers me. I shouldn't be deemed as, like I remember in college, in a, one of these large classes, and it basically being said that if you don't believe evolution, you're an idiot. And that's, that's how people who believe what we believe, they view us as idiots. It's not right, it's not fair. I think the burden of proof should be on them as well. In fact, I plant, uh, Alvin Plantinga is a, a contemporary uh, Christian philosopher. He, and I, I spend, a, I, I, it's, philosophy is interesting to me, but it's also, it's a, anyway, he says that, and I, I agree with him though, he said, you can't show that be religious belief isn't warranted without at first assuming that it's false. They, the other side is, has to assume that it's false. And they're making a, that's a bad assumption. You can't do that. It might be true. It might be true. Now we think it is true, but you see what I'm saying? We don't let the other side get away with it. It's not right. 
Um, so to get back on track, I, don't, I keep looking at that clock and think I have 15 minutes. Um, uh, not only is belief in God rational, our method of knowing God more intimately is rational as well. And that's why Scripture says, but these are written that you may believe. There's a reason Scripture gives that to us. Our rational capacity is the capacity to make judgments. Um, that is, uh, and I'm reading notes because I'm going fast. I'm going to, our quest to know Christ is regulated by sound reason. Our experiences, our perceptions, and our emotions ought to be sound inferences judged in conformity with Scripture. So I want to talk about briefly about perception and experience. Um, perception is the process by which we acquire information about the world around us using our senses, our five senses. Um, really at root, um, all empirical knowledge is, is grounded in how we hear, see, touch, taste, smell. Um, we gather perceptual data and then relate to that our beliefs about the knowledge of the world. Now, perception may differ from reality. We're, it's subject to, you know, it's not perfect. But, you know, for example, if I see what looks like a lemon on the counter from a distance, well, then I believe it exists. I may be wrong when I get up to the counter, right? Um, there's examples for, of perception from, uh, perception from Scripture. Uh, Jesus did signs and wonders to establish his authority, but he wanted them to perceive that he was different. He, he was different. and Everybody knew he was different. Even the people that hated him knew he was different. Um, that's something in 1 Corinthians that I just did in my devotion a couple of days ago where I where it talks about, you know, men, wise men crucifying Christ. And I've also, haven't you always been baffled by that? Right? How the people would turn. He did all those miracles. He even raised someone from the dead. It always astounded me. But it must be a picture of us too, right? We can't look at those people and say we're better. And we have to keep challenging ourselves. Um, I've talked about the importance of experience, and I'm, I'm having to move ahead because I see that I have five minutes. Um, God's word exhorts us to experience his loving kindness. And I couldn't help but, but um, think of, of verses like this one. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Scripture is, is continually... Um, asking us to, to, to experience God's love, his loving kindness. Um, I have a few more verses I was going to read, but this is another one. Um, I'm hoping you can read it because I'm going to keep going. The testimony of experience, I'm trying to figure out, I'm editing on the spot now. Um, Though we might not encounter the kind of evidence that Thomas did, um, we can witness the working of God in our lives. Now, I have to admit, we have to be careful about it. I am always leery of people who say, God told me this, God told me that. 
But God does speak to us, right? He may not speak to us audibly, but he does open and close doors. He does bring people in your life. It's odd, because I was thinking, oh, wait, the next person in, I'll have pray, and it was Josh, and he couldn't talk. It was really <laughs> odd. And I closed that door really fast. Um, um, but God is working, and that's one of, one of, I think, should be a regular prayer, because when... When Solomon says his mercies are new every morning, I, do you really believe that? Do you believe it? Yes. Yes? yes. How do you know? Okay. I, I would like to go further. I'd like to know because I see them. And I think it's not arrogant to ask God to give you eyes to see those mercies that are new every morning. Right? Do you agree? Yeah. I think I often don't see that because I take for granted what God does. Okay. I'm too busy to notice. I think we should ask God to, to show us the connections, the people he's putting in our lives, the opportunities that he gives us to encourage, to love. I mean, can you imagine how, think about how many opportunities you have to love people during the day. And it's a, it's a mercy to be able to do that because I, I don't know about you, but when I, my wife's a perfect example, when I love on my wife, I get joy. I've pleased someone whose affection I really desire. I, I feel good loving somebody. And yet, I'm often too selfish to do it. You follow? We look for his mercies are new every day, but we either take it for granted or we're too busy to notice. And I think we need eyes to see them because they're there, not just because the Bible told, tells me, and I do believe the Bible does, but they're there. Um, emotions, I wanted to talk about emotions, and uh, Jonathan just left, which means it's uh, getting near the end here. Um, say again? Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> Experience, though, matters. Experience does... Ex, okay. <laughs> what, uh, how about, so in John 9, one of my favorite stories was also one of Bob Forney's favorite stories, was the story of the man who was born blind. What a great response, right? One thing I do know, once I was blind, now I see. And we can use that experience to minister to other people, to encourage them, to even lead them to Christ, to say, once I was blind, now I see. So I say, don't undervalue experience, all right? If you've seen the testimony of God working in your life, it should not only encourage you, but hopefully you can allow it to encourage others. 
don't we have more credibility as servants of the gospel if we can point out the fact that Jesus is working in our lives, that he's doing something good, right? And that's what I'm, what I'm trying to get to. I can see that I, boy, I really, this one, whew, look at all this stuff. That was, okay. Well, um, I think, let's see, what do I want to end with here? Let's just run right to the end. I think we should be careful to evaluate the integrity and purity of our emotions. But, but emotions are good. And when we leave here, in about 30 minutes, we're going to be singing. What's going to be on your mind? I tell you, I am a, my mind is always moving. I can't even get through the confession without thinking about something else. And that bothers me. When that person is leading us in a corporate confession, I should be able to focus on every word, and I just can't. What's wrong with me? But it's not like I never have. I can, right? But I do need God's help. We need God's help. So as we prepare our hearts for, for worship, we should ask for singularity of purpose, of mind, right? And... Um, Let's make worship meaningful this morning. It, make it better. Make it different. And, and that's what I think that new, mercies are new every morning. That's, we're going to see in a half an hour, hopefully, mercies that are new. And, we can, we can, and if we praising God, whether we lift our hands or not, we, we can say, thank you, God. Right? Thank you. Am I right? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.